there is no secret formula for scaling customer support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new HubSpot Service Hub, bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with AI-powered help desk, all so you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. I was testing all the way back in September and October of last year. They didn't tell us anything about even that this was going to be GPT-4. They just said, you know, it's a new model and we want your help testing it. They did not tell us anything about how it was trained. They didn't really give us anything in particular to look for. It was just kind of, hey, here's a new model. It's, you know, as you might expect, you know, all of our models keep getting better, but try it out. We want to see what it's good for, you know, what problems you find with it, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll never forget where I was, you know, the night that I got that email, we had had a power outage here at our house. And so I was over at my parents' house with my kids. I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor and immediately I'm just on my phone, you know, in bed, but going through every use case I can think of. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your show for marketing-minded people everywhere. I'm your co-host, Kip Bodner, CMO here at HubSpot, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Kieran Flanagan, who's the CMO over at Zapier. And we are joined by a very special guest today. His name is Nathan LeBenz, and he is the co-founder of Waymark. He is focused on all things AI and product development there. He is also the host of the Cognitive Revolution podcast, And he is here today because we are breaking down all things GPT-4, what are going to be the current use cases in 2023, some of the best tools. Nathan was early involved in GPT-4, and he's going to tell us some of the things he learned from that experience. I am so, so excited. Nathan, welcome to the show today. Thank you, guys. I'm excited about this. Kieran, where do you want to start? Okay, Nathan, we have been talking about AI a lot on this show over the past six months. Original chat GPT blew our minds. Chat GPT-4 is, I described this week as our everywhere, everything, all at once moment for AI because it all just came at us from like Google, from OpenAI, the announcement from Microsoft, the co-pilot for business is super awesome. I think where we would like to start, where did you see the biggest leaps, like in this small amount of time from when we launched ChatGPT in November until now we're in March and we're doing GPT-4, where have you seen the biggest leaps in terms of functionality and what it can do? Like what's kind of blowing your mind? Boy, there's a lot there. So (laughs) I guess we better just start off a little bit of context in terms of like the timeline and, you know, kind of the scene in which I found myself when this all started. So, you know, OpenAI has put a lot of messaging out about safety around this whole launch, right? Yes. They have not disclosed the methods. They have come out and said, you know, they think it was a mistake to disclose methods in the past. They're not going to do that anymore. They are really trying to get a lot more clarity on their ability to predict what future capabilities will look like based on scaling. That's really a big part of their technical report that I think is under discussed so far because it's, you know, a little bit takes a little bit longer to wrap our heads around that. And they also launched this evals library, which anyone can contribute to. So they're starting to build kind of an open source standard battery of tests that you can throw at a new language model and try to get a handle on how they perform. So I say all that because. They they really did take their time before putting this out. That was not just bluster. I was testing all the way back in September and October of last year. 
And at the time, they didn't really tell us anything, you know, as part of the, I'm an open AI customer. So, you know, follow their work pretty closely. And that was true even before. But coming into this red teaming experience, they didn't tell us anything about even that this was going to be GPT-4. They just said, you know, it's a new model and we want your help testing it. They did not tell us anything about how it was trained. They didn't really give us anything in particular to look for. It was just kind of, hey, here's a new model. It's, you know, as you might expect, you know, all of our models keep getting better, but try it out. We want to see what it's good for, you know, what problems you find with it, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll never forget where I was, you know, the night that I got that email we had had a power outage here at our house. And so I was over at my parents' house with my kids. I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor. And, uh, you know, it's also an indicator of just how hard OpenAI works. I think this email came in at like 11 p.m. Eastern time. You know, they sent it at 8 p.m. Pacific. And immediately I'm just on my phone, you know, in bed, but going through every use case I can think of. And, you know, I've been using language models quite a bit, right? all through the last year as they've kind of grown in utility. You know, one big step change anyway in utility was the original Instruct model. And it's crazy to think that that was just January 2022 that that came out. So this was only like, you know, six, seven months later than that. And so I'd had all these kind of use cases that I was, you know, not really able to get to work with previous models. And I just started running them down one by one. And it was kind of like, whoa, they fixed everything. Like it all (laughs) works now. So my initial battery of tests was just like pacifying colors, pacifying colors. You know, some of this was Waymark specific tasks where we have in our video generation product, we take a very structured approach. So we have kind of very precise format that we need the model to return stuff to us. in. otherwise, like it just won't work. And we fine tune models to do that still today in production. But and no, none of the previous models had been able to zero shot our task. So that was kind of the first thing I tested, you know, can this thing zero shot a Waymark video script? Sure enough, you know, first time I didn't have to tinker with the instructions. I didn't have to, you know, mess with the prompt all that much. It just, just worked. Does that mean it took a script and created a video from just that text or what what is first shot? Great question. So just, you know, on the terms alone, you know, going back to the original GPT-3, the title of that paper was language models are few shot learners. And that, you know, kind of set up the paradigm of you give it a couple of examples that it can pick up on those examples and start to do that task just based on the examples that you've provided. So when people talk about language models being, you know, glorified autocomplete, they're kind of referring to that paradigm that was the original GPT-3. With the Instruct series, you can much more often now just tell it what you want and it will do it. And that is referred to as zero shot, meaning you didn't Mm. give it any examples. You just set up the task for the first time. And it can do it. So we started to have like meaningful zero shot in January 2022 with the release of Instruct. But it was as even GPT-4 is, of course, it was, you know, limited and it couldn't do the script writing task that Waymark needs it to do. Basically, we use a kind of ensemble of different AIs to put together the videos. So it's not that the language model would create the video, but we would basically say, here is the structure of the video that we need you to write a script for. The structure would be very gnarly. And our requirement is that it follow the structure exactly while also then delivering creative writing within that structure. And the creative writing has been pretty good for a while. But prior to this model, no other model that I had ever seen was able to follow the instructions and respect the format that we needed it to respect without, you know, examples provided or fine tuning or whatever. So that was just kind of like, wow, it can understand a lot more complicated stuff. It is able to kind of be coherent and do what you want it to do, 
even with things just being fundamentally more complicated, longer inputs, et cetera, et cetera. So from there, I was kind of off to the races, you know, and just went down the rabbit hole of like, well, what else can this do? One of the big problems we've had is that it historically hasn't been very good at counting. So I asked it to give me a bunch of first sentences of a children's story with exactly seven words each. And prior models would give you an intro to a children's story, but they wouldn't be seven words each. This one, boom, seven, 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 you know, just like <laughs> flawless nice. uh, performance. So kind of looking at all these different things, you know, you start to think, man, what are the limits of this thing? And, you know, over time you do find them. I think Sam Altman's launch tweet was really remarkable in that, you know, typically when a CEO is out, you know, Hyping up is usually what they're doing, a new launch. Well, they're hyping yeah. They're hype men, right? Yeah. And his tweet was the opposite of being a hype person. Yeah, right? he was saying it's still limited, it's still flawed, and it will seem less powerful as you spend more time with it. Which, yeah, I mean, that's almost anti-standard hype launch announcement. Yeah, completely. But I think that is true. You know, when I started to push on it farther, you know, I found, first of all, that it can sometimes generate links and citations. And the first couple that I checked were valid. You know, I asked it about like how transformer architectures work and it gave me a pretty good explanation. And then I asked, you know, can you give me some references for further reading? And it spit out, you know, a couple of kind of the canonical papers. I know that if I asked it a question, I was asking it to cite its resources and then it seemed to stop that at some point. So I didn't try. Well, it's not very good at it still. And I haven't tested the launched version enough yet, you know, because we're only GPT-4 plus three on the new calendar at this point. But, you know, this is where you can get tricked, right? And and I think there is still a real importance to be placed on being a savvy user. And, you know, the technical report talks a lot about the risk of over-reliance. And I kind of lived that, you know, roller coaster over the first few days because first links that I did see were real, you know, and, and they were actually just archive links. So there's not even any like semantic content in those links, right? They're just like IDs. But copy, paste, boom. You know, what paper was that? Oh, it was the original Transformer Architecture paper from 2017. And next one, what's that? Oh, that was the language models are few shot learners. Like, amazing. You know, direct links to the papers. I thought, this thing has a link index in it? Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) And they were kind of like, keep testing, you know? And so (laughs) I then, of course, pushed that farther. And then you start to find out that, no, it will make stuff up just like the old models do. It's just that that boundary of where it starts to hallucinate is much further out. Right. So, you know, you're not going to encounter it as often. And, you know, for more kind of -of run-of-the-mill daily stuff, it will usually be right. But in some ways, it's a little bit more dangerous because you're out there on a limb of things you don't know. And that's also where it doesn't know. And then you can, you know, you can be really confused about exactly like, how much should I trust this in this domain? But the biggest thing I think most people will notice is that it is going to just work a far higher percentage of the time for many routine, you know, mundane tasks that are like fairly common. I kind of always emphasize these like outer edge issues as well, because the mainline cases are going to lull people into thinking that this thing is like perfect and that they can just trust it. And within a certain domain, that's going to be more true than not. But where the limits of that are, you know, where you where you start to get out of that domain is often pretty tough to tell. We have a lot of like founders, business people, marketers who listen to this very dependent upon search engines, like one of the best ways that businesses have grown in the past. And Kip and I have explored what AI means for search in general. And I think one of the things we believe is it kind of pushes traditional search engines into the background, like it's an interface on top of search and 
I think Bing is doing a good job of trying to incorporate them. But the old search engine at some point looks archaic. It's not the way that people want to navigate or retrieve information. What do you think in terms of, you know, a lot of the use cases you mentioned was retrieving information and it being able to synthesize that, provide context, format it. How do you think about the future of the traditional search engine in this world? Because it felt like this week, Kip was even saying this in the last episode, a lot of people who kind of work in search or SEO, they kind of just woke up to the fact that, oh, wait a minute, I think this is really bad for us. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what we do in a world where this thing is evolving this quickly and getting this good. I guess for starters, I would say I still find for most things, I still find the kind of vanilla GPT-4 which you can use in the, you know, ChatGPT Plus subscription, more helpful than Bing for most things. It allows you to have longer conversations. You know, the, the context window is 8,000 tokens, which is about 6,000 or so words, which is like 45 minutes of nonstop conversation or like 10 to 12 single-spaced pages. You could fit a lot into that. You can really give it a lot to work with as well. You can summarize like medium length articles. You know, I've been doing experiments with like comparing a LinkedIn post to a job description and seeing, you know, can the AI identify, you know, what are the good points of possible fit? You know, what are the possible weaknesses? What would the hiring manager's concerns be? Oh, cool. Like taking someone's profile and comparing it with an actual job and asking the AI, is that person a good fit for the job? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Well, no, it does work with GPT-4. It does not work with... 3.5. 3.5. If you go and do that with chat GPT, it will get confused because it's just a little too much, I think. And it kind of, you know, it will confuse requirements of the role with qualifications that the person has, which obviously makes basically the thing not very good at the task. Bing, for context, has a 2000 token limit in what you can mm-hmm. enter. So you can't even enter stuff like that. Like it just doesn't accept that much input in the first place. GPT-4 can do that task. And it obviously knows a ton. GPT-4 has a near photographic memory for like Wikipedia content. Mm. It is not perfect there. It can still make mistakes, can still hallucinate. But if you ask it to tell you, you know, basically sketch out like a random Wikipedia page, you compare that to GPT 3.5, you know, versus 4. 3.5 doesn't know that much. And it kind of goes off the rails pretty quick. Or more often than not, will be able to give you, not a verbatim, but like a version of a Wikipedia article that is pretty useful. And so coming back to the search question, that ability is a genuine substitute for search for many things. And GPT-4 is not doing the search in real time. It does know some links that are like, you know, famous and longstanding, but it doesn't have, you know, up-to-date information. And yet I still do find it for many things more helpful than Bing. Bing obviously has many advantages that it can, you know, get real-time information. But I honestly think they're kind of still figuring out how to do the most useful form of search powered by GPT-4. I think it probably will get a lot better. And yeah, what's that going to mean for websites that, you know, monetize on traffic? It does sound like there's going to be a lot of disruption. I mean, I don't think that's going to be the biggest disruption society is going to see by any means. (laughs) But yeah, if you're monetizing on a CPM basis, I don't like how things are going. And not just because of Bing, but because, you know, even GPT-4 that doesn't use the internet, you know, can substitute for a lot of us. Okay, so I heard a few things there I want to break down for the audience. So I think the three of us are in agreement that, wow, search is going to evolve dramatically. But there's some barriers in like the timeline of that. And Nathan, you talked about a couple of them. One is 
well, GPT-4 is really great, but it still doesn't have real-time information. The second issue is a lot of the information it gives you is incorrect, like quality and accuracy of information outside of that kind of like key facts, figures, photographic kind of like this information has been true for 100 years, it'll be true for 100 more years kind of information. There are weaknesses there, which is really interesting. And what that tells me is that if you're a marketer today, you know, is Google getting displaced today? No, it's probably like next year, you know, 12, 18, 24 months, not in the next three to six months. The other thing that you brought up that I thought was fascinating, for example, with that use case of taking a job description and matching a LinkedIn profile. First of all, there are just some search and matching use cases that you couldn't do in the old school version of search that you can now do in a world of AI search, which I think is really valuable. And the thing I want to just leave this search part of the conversation with is if you're a marketer out there, one of your big opportunities, like, for example, like I, my job was related to recruiting. My product was related to recruiting at all. I would go build a really lightweight web app on GPT-4 to do that use case you just said, right, Nathan? And I would promote that and I would get a ton of pickup on social, through email, through other channels beyond search. And I would help diversify how people discover my business from search through having like lightweight web applications like that. And I think there's going to be kind of new marketing tactics that come up in all of that. Kieran, are you in all on all that stuff with me? Do you think my summary there was rational? Yeah, I think it's a good summary. I, I don't think we should gloss over the fact that even Google being disrupted at all was something that <laughs> no one could have contemplated 12 months ago. So two years, three years, the fact that that's a discussion, I don't think we should underestimate just how transformative that is, given that this has been out in the wild for six months. The other thing, what ChatGPT really showed is the, you know, the user interface is really so integral to how things are adopted. And the average user is not going to verify any of this stuff. <laughs> like They're going to use it because it's an easier, better product. And it's going to be interesting because I don't think they're going to validate if all of the information is correct. So there's like some potential for weird, strange things that will happen as if people do kind of go from a traditional search experience to like a chat experience. But one of the things I wanted to quickly touch on is you did this incredible thread and you kind of talked about the specific areas that you saw GPT-4 disrupted in 2023. And it's really related to like business. Like here's how this is going to really impact business this year, not the five-year timeframe, not the 10-year timeframe. Could you maybe give like a couple in terms of like those areas and why you think they're going to be really disruptive to businesses? Yeah. For one thing, we just have no good reference point for what these AIs are, how they act, you know, how they're made. Like, it's just a total alien form mm. that has all of a sudden kind of popped up. You know, certainly people in general don't have a great way to understand that. And analogies and metaphors are often not great. But especially because it's been kind of positioned as this chat, you know, and you have this kind of dialogue with it it feels like you're interacting with a person largely, right? And there are obviously some differences and it makes mistakes people wouldn't make. But I think most people are kind of slotting this into, yeah, it's sort of person-like. And that then leads to questions like, well, can it take our jobs? <laughs> and I do think that's a little bit the wrong question because there are some very fundamental limitations still on these systems. I'm not here to say by any means that like those limitations won't be broken through and and potentially even, you know, in the not too distant future. But for the moment, you know, there are some limitations. One big one is just that you have a context window limit. 8,000 tokens, like I mentioned earlier, they also have a 32,000 token version, which is more expensive, which is amazing. I mean, that is now three hours of 
real-time conversation or like 40-ish pages of 50 pages, I think people have said, of, you know, single space text. So you can put a lot in there. Yeah, just for our listeners, the kind of takeaway there for people listening is the larger the number of tokens, the more information it can hold and manipulate and reason with. And you can like tell it to, hey, read a, a book and then process that information and then apply that learning to something that you give it next. Yeah, and again, not to be too over analogizing to human form, but it's kind of like the working memory of the right. system, right? It has the mm-hmm. long-term memory of everything that it's trained on and all the facts that it can muster, but then it has the working memory of like, well, what am I dealing with now? Anything that's not in its long-term memory that you provide it at runtime has to fit into that, as well as anything you want it to generate right. in response to that. So that's called the context window. The scale of that is also kind of going exponential. Not that long ago, it was a 2,000 token max. Then it hit 4,000. Now we're at eight and even to 32. So, you know, the amount of stuff that you can stuff into an AI at runtime and ask it to, you know, take care of and, you know, pull insights from or synthesize or whatever, like that has grown by more than 10x in just like the last two years. So, you know, that matters a lot because my resume is longer than 2,000 tokens and a lot of job descriptions are longer than 2,000 tokens. So you couldn't do that, even if the previous generation with the 2,000 token limit was as smart as GPT-4, that 2,000 token limit would bind and you would not be able to do these like resume, job posting, you know, analysis tasks. You just can't fit all the context in there. And so I say all that to say that this question of like, will it take our jobs? I think is the answer is kind of no, because jobs require more context mm-hmm. than the AIs can handle. However, what I think people do miss then when they say no to that first question is how many of the tasks that constitute jobs can be structured in such a way where they do fit into the window and the AI, therefore, does have a shot at doing them. And so I think this, like, you know, resume one that we kind of keep coming back to is a really good example because, you know, when you think about, well, what is the work of a recruiter? Well, it's definitely multiple different tasks, but like one big task is considering is this person a likely fit for this role, right? And having good judgment there and being able to do that quickly, like that really matters, right? That is a big part of the job. You might also have like writing custom outreach to that individual as like another part of that job. So it turns out now with GPT-4, you have an AI that can do those core tasks. It cannot come in and sit at the computer and replace the recruiter. But, you know, if you were to really take a time log of, what is this person doing as they do their job of a recruiter? And you said like, okay, now how many of the hours of that average, you know, canonical day, how many of the tasks that that take up the time that constitute the day of that job could be structured and delegated to an AI? The answer is quite high. That would still suggest it's going to take some jobs because... It totally is. In that case, you might have a team of 10 recruiters and now you need two. Yeah, exactly. So I think that the answer is not that it takes the job, it's that it changes how work gets done. And so jobs sort of, you know, dissolve, but they're not like directly taken. I think that's kind of the the way it's ultimately going to play out. Well, so in this example, what I think is interesting, what I would put out there to like the founders, marketers, everybody who are listening to us is like, so let's say the determining if somebody's qualified for a job, you could say used to still is a manual job a person had to do on the back end, right? You could imagine a world, Nathan, you're a product guy, where you just, you then put the onus on the user, that the user comes to apply for the job, the matching happens in real time, and the user is told, 
then and there, like, oh, you're not a fit for this job. You would actually be a fit for this other job we have. Are, are you interested in applying for that? Or you are a fit for this job and you could even almost guarantee an outreach at that point because you're then only having recruiters engage with anybody who are matched fits for that job, for example, right? And like, that is a big shift in how people do this type of work. And this is, I think what you, you're you saying, what you've shared on your Twitter threads, it's like, this is just one of many examples where day-to-day roles that are especially what I call programmatic roles, where somebody does a similar thing over and over again, are going to change dramatically. Yeah, I think anything that is routine, anything that is documented, anything where there is, you know, to get into medicine here even a little bit, a standard of care, mm-hmm. or you get into, you know, law and there's a notion of the standard of professional responsibility. Those sorts of highly documented, highly defined tasks really lend themselves well to AI completion. And so I think we're, you know, I called this the great implementation in that thread. And I think it will take some time, but I don't think it's going to take that much time for a lot of these things because the core task itself is usually pretty easy to make work. You know, I'm I'm working with this friend's company, which is called Athena, and they're in the executive assistant space. They, you know, recruit executive assistants in the Philippines, pair them with clients mostly in the U.S., but, you know, could be anywhere. And they've got all these kind of playbooks of here are things that your EA can do for you to make your life, you know, so much easier and better. The top priority for a lot of folks is hiring, right? How can I scale my, you know, scanning and identifying of passive candidates? How can I scale my outreach to them? And so there's this whole kind of methodology that's like you can delegate that to your EA. But again, you have like, you know, human speed, especially when folks are early in the job, like. They've never done a job like that. They don't know that much about the company yet. You know, it's hard to evaluate. And so, you know, we have success there, but we also have things where people like rightly, you know, aren't super confident that their new EA can do this out of the box, right? Well, it doesn't take much now to get GPT-4 to do it. And, you know, next thing, you know, I think we're going to be bundling those up into zaps and kind of making them, you know, template zaps that, EAs can go and grab, clone, you know, connect client accounts. And the next thing you know, it's kind of working. Did that company have a recruiter before? You know, in a lot of cases, maybe they didn't. Like another way that this can kind of take shape is like jobs that might have come into existence never do. I had uh, the CEO of Perplexity AI on on my podcast and small team, but they built an awesome search experience. I really recommend it. Perplexity.ai. It's cool. And I would say it holds its own with Bing, even though they didn't have GPT-4 when I was evaluating it. But the most interesting thing he said to us is we don't hire really any support roles at the company. You know, we're all engineers. Like we don't hire, we don't have a marketer. We just use ChatGPT to do that kind of stuff for us. And, you know, now they've got GPT-4 on top of that. So at some point, you know, they were going to hit their limit and they were going to hire a marketer. I think that date just got pushed back to the point where they're not this year, probably maybe still next year, but they're going to get a lot bigger before they're going to start hiring kind of non-engineers at their company, I think. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight in one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love this show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies 
not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. I want to try something on both of you. Nathan, Kieran and I on the show, we love good frameworks. We're logical, clear thinkers. And I think my summary of what you just said, Nathan, is there's almost a two by two here that is on one axis, there are a type of work that is very, very clearly documented, clearly defined. And on the other end, it is very opaque, right? That takes a lot of human cognition. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of judgment calls being made in it. And we're saying that AI in 2023 is going to be really good at handling those super clearly defined, clearly scoped types of problems. And on the other axis, it's those problems are either super complex or they're very like systematic and simple. And what we're really saying is in 2023, I think AI is going to disrupt a lot of jobs and tasks that are systematic, simple, pretty straightforward, that also have very clear like requirements and are defined really well. Do you agree with that? I think things that are intellectually demanding can still be like fairly routine and well-documented. Yeah. So how to take a patient's medical history and how to do differential diagnosis is something that people train a long time for and, you know, is not by any means like simple, but is something that AIs are really starting to do. You're making the argument that the whole right side of that two by two, both blocks are AIs disrupting this year. Instead of just the straightforward, simple kind of clear tasks, you're saying it's also able to tackle those complex kind of well-documented tasks. You know, as long as there is a clear sense of what good looks like and, you know, lots of training data out there, then yes, I think the limiting factor now on like when we're going to have good AI doctor services is probably regulation, you know, because not to be lost in this week's AI news, Google just put out a post about MedPalm 2, which they say is now achieving expert level analysis on like board exam questions. Yeah, I saw that. That's crazy. Their last version was only three months ago. And it was like, you know, high end med student level, like borderline passing. And now in less than 90 days, they come back with expert level. So the things that I think are not yet going to be, I wouldn't even say they're not going to be affected because there's this kind of co-pilot paradigm as well. But the things that I think, you know, are not going to be as disrupted are those that are like original thought, you know, things that just where there isn't anything really to base on. Yeah. So oddly enough, I don't really use AI at all in writing my threads. Right. Because first of all, the training data, you know, is cut off in 2021. A lot has happened since then. And there just isn't a lot out there, you know, that could really help it analyze. What I will do with GPT-4 that I couldn't really do with 3.5, I think I've posted everything so far just on Twitter. And the reason for that is I just haven't had the time to kind of transform it to something that would be appropriate for other mediums. How do I do that on LinkedIn? Whatever, do I just like paste everything? It doesn't seem like it's quite right. So I just do the one thing. I think GPT-4 will allow me to, you know, take a thread that I'm happy with that was, you know, built for Twitter or whatever and be like, okay, give me the blog post version. Repurpose it. Give me the LinkedIn version of that. Yeah. And I think that will actually start to be pretty good. So it should allow me to do more. You know, it should be helpful in my content creation, but I'm not expecting anything this year that is like meaningfully shaping the output of that work. It's going to be more about transforming it after it's created. Like storytelling, creativity and different points of view are still 
unique to humans. I have not used AI for any, I, I use it to research, but I don't really use it to write anything because I don't write educational content, best practice, those type of things. And so when you're kind of just writing on your own personal experience, you know, it's obviously not going to be able to do anything there. But I do think because GPT-4 can hold so many more tokens, that's a perfect use case for marketers, which is you can give it a lot of your content that you've created and ask it to repurpose it in a multitude of different ways. And so it should be able to actually help. Again, all of this is really helping you to be much more efficient. Like one of the biggest areas for disruption is companies built in a pre-AI era are likely much bigger than they need to be in a post-AI era. And I think that is the part where I see a ton of disruption in the next like two to five years is you have a lot of companies who probably don't need to be anywhere near the size they are. Kieran, I think you're totally right on that. All right. Well, so Nathan, you've mentioned a couple tools already, Athena, and I think the other was perplexity.ai. What are some other AI tools out there that you're like, hey, I'm using these a lot. I'm finding real value. If you're kind of a marketer, business person who's not this technical, deep into the AI space, you should go and try some of these because they're going to help you kind of understand these use cases. One of my most little joke tweets over the last couple months was the AI serenity prayer where I said, God grant me the agility to use the AI tools that will still be relevant in six months, <laughs> the patience to pass on the rest and the wisdom to know the difference. And I do think it's a real... You know, that got a lot of likes because a lot of people in this space are, you know, feeling exactly that way. There's so much stuff coming at us and it's like, whoa, there's a lot of cool stuff. I honestly think that the application layer, not super bullish on it long term. I do kind of think, and by long term, I mean like, again, this year, I think the incumbents ultimately are going to have a lot of advantage in that they are going to be able to see these little experiments that are cool. Yeah. And then they're going to be able to integrate them very quickly. And especially with GPT-4, very quickly. Because again, it works right away much of the time. So you don't have to do a lot of prompt engineering for most routine things. So, okay, you see something cool, it's out there, it's working. Like there's a reason we're seeing dozens and dozens of incumbents launching stuff, you know, either with the GPT-4 launch or like, you know, <laughs> immediately after. Because this is actually easier to do than typical software development, right? It's something that really lends itself to a kind of lean skunk works, you know, prototyping sort of thing. And so once the ideas are out there, the incumbents can definitely come around and, you know, fill in their gaps. So I think that's kind of what I would expect to happen is that the products that you already use are going to all become AI enabled. And that's probably where most people are going to use most of their AI. Yeah. You know, I don't think with few exceptions, I don't expect it to be like a huge shift toward new applications. So that, you know, can maybe put some people, if you don't feel like you have to be personally on the bleeding edge, like then, you know, some a lot of it will come to you, like literally in office, right? As we've seen this week, like it's going to come to Word and it's come to Excel and in PowerPoint. So all that said, some things I think are cool. I really enjoy playing around with the image creator tools. I recommend Playground AI because it is free up to a thousand images a day. And they also have a really nice implementation of image editing. Another one of the funny things that, you know, got a lot of kind of reactions recently was my wife is pregnant. We're going to have our third child in a couple of weeks. And we had the ultrasound image of, you know, the, the baby's face. And I asked the AI to, instead of an ultrasound image, make this look like a newborn baby. And that's literally all I said what? and provided the ultrasound image. Oh, wow. And it spits out, you know, what we've come to call the preview of our baby. It that's looks like a crazy. newborn <laughs> baby. We'll see how accurate it is. That's crazy. So I like that stuff. 
The yeah, new yeah, Journey yeah. is fantastic. Dolly 2 is fantastic. I mean, all these things are... Stable Diffusion has, you know, birthed a, a million variations, many of which are cool. But I like Playground just because it kind of has all those things in one. It's free. It's really easy. And the edit thing is is super cool. I play around a lot these days with voice generation software, which is, like again, obviously all, you know, moving rapidly toward transformer architecture. At Waymark, for the longest time, we wanted to add voiceovers to the videos that we created, but we just couldn't get to the point where the quality was acceptable. You know, when we use like Amazon text to speech, it's like just sounds like a robot, you know, and nobody wants to advertise themselves that way. It just doesn't work. Well, that has flipped, you know, in the last few months. And now there are multiple good text to speech tools. Are they perfect? No, not quite yet. There's another generation <laughs> coming real soon. Next week, I think we'll release an episode with the founder of Play HT. They do currently ultra realistic voices. And we recorded the intro to the show in my cloned ultra realistic voice made on their platform. It only took me 10 minutes of audio to clone my voice. Then I can just drop in the script. It spits out, you know, the audio back to me. And that's how we're going to introduce that show. So that's going to be a weird future, to say the least. I really like Replit for running code Mm -hmm. that comes out of AIs. It's a nice little quick spin-up environment. They have their own coding AI, which is good, but it's it's not, you know, on the GPT-4 level. But it is good and very impressive for a company that's not that big. I think they're only like 100 people. And, you know, you got a lot of projects going on there. So that one is really cool. I really like it in Sheets also. I think it's very, there's like GPT-3 for Sheets, which will soon be GPT-4 for Sheets. And I think there's a couple of products. One is called Numerous. It's pretty nicely done. Basically, these things can, you know, they can do a lot in Sheets. They can generate the formulas that you ask them to generate, which is super helpful. They can just fill in data. So there's a lot of utility there in a Sheets integration. Obviously, that's going to come, you know, to Microsoft in even probably a more native way before we know it. Yeah, Microsoft just announced some improvements there across all of Office 365, rolling out OpenAI's features yesterday at their event. So it's like, I think what we just learned from your tool rundown is like, wow, there's a lot happening in text, audio, video, productivity. There's a lot of awesome tools that you could be a a non-technical user and go take advantage of, which is pretty amazing. I don't know about you, Kieran, but my head is spinning from all of not just the use cases, but perspective on just how fast this technology is moving and how as it moves fast, it opens up countless use cases for business, for growing your business. And we're going to keep covering everything here on Marketing Against the Grain. Obviously, we want to thank Nathan LeBins for joining us. Nathan, it was amazing to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see everybody very, very soon on Marketing Against the Grain. Marketing Against the Grain.